We are continuing this morning with our study of the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find this morning's passage on page 1278. 1278. As you're turning there, uh, remember from last week that we talked about the reality of God's promised rest for His people and that it isn't just something that happened in the distant past in the promise of the land of Israel or sometime since then, but rather it is something that endures, a promise that endures even today and that will be completed, perfected on the day when he returns. This week we're going to actually return to part of the passage that we looked at last week, dig a little bit deeper into verses 11 to 13. And honestly, this is maybe the single most famous verse from this entire book. It will be a familiar verse, so hopefully let's, let's pray that we'll, as we dig into it, we'll see it with fresh eyes. Um, of course, if that's going to happen, we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us. So if you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to a familiar passage this morning, one that we've heard dozens, certainly, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of times before. And so we come with lots of lots of preconceptions and we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to what your truth for us today is. If it's the same thing that we've heard, let us see it in a new way. If it is a deeper or even a different truth than we have seen before, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified as we receive your truth and accept it and trust it and believe you in it our sin militates against us seeing your your hand at work it militates against us believing you and so lord we pray that you would by your spirit be among us restraining our sin that you would cause us to see your grace and your glory in your word this morning we need you desperately So, Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself by being present with us in a special way through the reading and the preaching of your word. To the glory of your name alone, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would do all these things. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11. This is God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective or active or powerful, depending on your translation. The word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Joni Erickson Tata, in her book, A Place of Healing, reflects on how we tend to worry that the cares, the troubles, the afflictions, the hard parts of life will wear us down and make us forget our hope. We fear that suffering will rob us of the joy that we are supposed to be able to experience as believers. 
But she writes, in fact, it may be the very opposite. It isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More often, it is careless pride, or excuse me, careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that put layers of dirty film over our souls. And then as as illustrating her point, she goes on to describe a visit to uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris before the fires. Uh, she, She writes, I will never forget years ago when I had the chance to visit Notre Dame Cathedral while I was in Paris. There it was, almost a thousand years old, standing there so huge and black. I'd never seen such a dirty church. After hundreds of years of soot, dusts, and smoke, Notre Dame was covered in layers of black grime. It was difficult even to make out the beautiful carvings and the details on the exterior. But then, that grand old cathedral went through a year-long restoration. Scaffolding was erected. The entire exterior was sandblasted. She writes, I was stunned when I saw a recent photograph of the cathedral. It was beautiful. And so very different from the way I remembered it. The ancient stones glowed bright and golden. You could see the details of the carvings that hadn't been visible in decades, if not centuries. It was like a different building entirely. What a wonder a bit of sandblasting can accomplish. And she goes on, when I use the word sandblasting and when I think of how that process changed the cathedral, the building in Paris. I can't help but consider the ways that God uses suffering to sandblast you and me. There's nothing like real hardship to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves. Heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect. When pain and problems press up against the holy God, suffering can't help but strip away the years of dirt. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character, shaking us up, loosening our grip on all of the wrong things that we hold so tightly. But the beauty of being stripped down to basics, of being sandblasted until we reach a place where we fall empty and helpless is that God fills us up with Himself. When pride and pettiness have been removed, God fills us with Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you consider the possibility of suffering in your life, do you look at it that way? Anticipating being filled with Christ as a result of your suffering? I don't. It's not the way my heart works. As humans, we pretty consistently fear the wrong things. We fear pain and grief because they're highly unpleasant, and who would want to do that? Who would choose to go through pain and grief and suffering? We fear the consequences of making mistakes. We fear being known to have made a mistake. We fear social isolation, being rejected by friends or even family. We even fear being rejected by random strangers on the internet, although maybe that's just me. In our passage this morning, the author is closing out his thoughts on Psalm 95 and through it the uh, Exodus generation's failure to trust the Lord when he sent them to the promised land initially. 
in closing that section out, the author highlights one of the more important ideas, which he's touched on at least briefly several times, the idea that we fear the wrong things. Now, the congregation, the, the Hebrews that the author is writing to, is addressing here, as we've said before, they're comprised of Christians from a Jewish background who very likely had already been cut off from family, from the social structure of the day on account of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, the Christ. But on top of that social rejection that they had already endured, they were now facing increasingly severe persecution for the sake of their profession of faith. Rome generally in throughout the empire was more than willing to have you worship whatever God you wanted as long as you also worship the emperor. You worship your gods, that's fine. Worship whatever God you like as long as you're also going to worship the emperor. There were a, a couple of exceptions, most notably Judaism, which had been given protected status. But now as Christianity was growing, the Jewish authorities were loudly proclaiming, telling everyone they could that these followers of the way, as Christians were called at the time, were not Jewish and were not covered by the Jewish protected status. So more and more, Rome was telling Christians, it's fine to worship the Christ. That's fine. Go right ahead. Worship the emperor too. And when the Christians, unsurprisingly, refused to worship the emperor, Rome began to institute ever stronger penalties for disturbing the social order. It started with calling Christians atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods, rejecting them from regular business and trade, the, the trade life of the empire, refusing to interact, and it grew to, in fact, imprisonments, beatings, and eventually to Christians dying for their faith in awful, brutal ways for refusing to worship the emperor. As Christians, if Christians generally in the empire were dealing with such things, with that sort of persecution, Christians in Palestine, under the direct governance of the Jewish authorities, had it much worse. And that's the context for this book. And as we look at the encouragement, the exhortation that we find in this passage from the author here that culminates this whole section of Hebrews, it's helpful to remind ourselves that this is not just abstract theologizing, as much fun as that may be, and trust me, I enjoy it as much as anybody. This isn't just abstract thought process. This is practical. This is written into a specific historical moment. The particular struggles of a specific group of Christians in that historical moment. In our passage this morning, the author gives his summary, his summation of the key point for this whole section that began at the beginning of chapter 3. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same disobedience. This is the key point that he's been making from Psalm 95 and through Psalm 95 from Numbers 14. Just as when Israel was on the cusp of entering the land the first time, they felt, yet it fell short, by refusing to believe the Lord. So now we can be said to be on the cusp of entering God's rest, facing the testing of our faith. 
Israel, back in Numbers, in the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, Israel had professed faith in the Lord, seen His miraculous, mighty works, and yet when it came time to trust the Lord to do what He said He would do in the future, they refused. They balked. They actually said, and this is Numbers 14, verses 2 and 3, they said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Would that we had died in this wilderness that we've just come through. It would be better to be dead than be facing these Canaanites. And here's the key. Numbers 14, verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? They'd seen the Lord overwhelm the Egyptian magicians force a release for them from 400 years of slavery. They had seen that they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then when the Egyptian army tried to follow, the Lord caused the whole army to be swallowed by the sea. But now, faced with the need to trust the Lord for the future, they refused. They actually decided to reject the Lord choose new leadership, and return to Egypt. The analogy to the first century Christians in their historical moment there should be clear, right? They'd seen the mighty works, all that Jesus had done among them, and ultimately they had seen him raised from the dead and ascended into heaven at the day of Pentecost. They'd even seen the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. They had seen the mighty works of God. But now they were being asked to trust God for the future. Trust God as persecution ramped up. They professed to believe, but now the test was on them. Would they trust the Lord for an uncertain future, or rather for a future that was looking more and more certain in a bad way? More and more certainly dangerous. Would they repeat the sin of the wilderness generation? Would they fear suffering and pain and even death at the hands of Rome more than they trusted the Lord? Now, let's be honest. It's easy for us sitting here in our comfortable sanctuary with no real danger, no real risk to us. It's really easy for us, for anyone to say, I would never reject the Lord that way. I would be faithful. Here's the reality. Until your faith is actually tested in that crucible, you don't know what you would do. Neither do I. I would like to think that my faith would remain strong and that I would trust the Lord in the face of whatever happened. I would like to think that my faith would be proven in that moment. But it's so easy to believe the powerful appearance of what we see around us of what threatens us, rather than believing the often invisible hand of the Lord. This is what the Israelites faced at the edge of the wilderness, and and we know that this is what the author is thinking about because of how he words this exhortation. Verse 12, this is a strange image, and as I said, this is probably the most famous verse in the book of Hebrews, but it's kind of a weird image. 
Probably didn't strike you that way because you're so familiar with the language, but let's look at it. He he says, the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's a weird comparison. God's word is referred to as a sword in a couple of other passages in Scripture. Once in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord, part of the, the armor of the faith. Uh, and, but there's also a, a really difficult image in Revelation 19 uh, of a sword coming from his mouth, from Jesus' mouth, with which to strike down the nations. The word of God is referred to as a sword in several places, but in those passages, the word of God is the sword and is directed outward. In both Revelation 19 and Ephesians 6, the sword is a weapon against the enemies of the Lord. But here, that's not what's happening. Here, the word is not the sword, but is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword. So what's going on? What is the author trying to convey here? The key, I think, is in the context, right? Context is king. You've heard me say that before. I think the key here is the Old Testament context that the author has been referring to consistently in this section. What was it the Israelites feared when they contemplated facing the Canaanites? What was it they feared? It was the Canaanites' military prowess, the weaponry that they were facing. Remember their complaint from Numbers 14. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? They feared the military might of the Canaanites more than they trusted the Lord despite the mighty works that they'd seen. So the author here reminds the Hebrews, by allusion to to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10 and Luke 12, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Instead, fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast body and soul into hell. That's the point here. Prioritize your fears. Order them rightly. Rightly recognize which is the more serious threat. To use modern language, having recognized accurately the relative dangers, then act on the basis of that threat assessment. Every human being, without exception, every human being will one day stand before the Lord and have to give an account to Him of our lives. And on that day, there will be nowhere to hide. Our inmost being, all the parts of our lives that we most want to cover up, including all the way down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, all of ourselves, as verse 13 tells us, will be as exposed before the Lord as if we stood naked. Fear that threat more than the mere destruction of your finances or even the destruction of your body. Here's the thing. Even as the author reminds them of that threat, even as he's trying to reorient their fear and order their fear correctly, he is simultaneously reminding them of the promise, of the hope that they have in Christ. Now, how did I get there? That seems kind of a jump, right? Let me, let me show you, show my work here. Uh, in both Matthew 10 and Luke 12, in the same breath that Luke tells the disciples to fear the one who can cast body and soul together into hell, 
He then starts talking about sparrows, and we're like, wait, what? What you doing, Jesus? How does that connect? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will die apart from your father? You are worth more than sparrows, than many sparrows. If the Lord watches over sparrows, which are a dime a dozen, to use modern idiom, whatever, if he doesn't even allow one sparrow to die apart from his will and purpose, how much more will he watch over you and guard you who are made in his image and claimed by the blood of his Son? How much more will he watch over you? The Israelites feared the accumulated military might of the Canaanites and refused to trust the Lord. The Hebrews feared the seemingly unstoppable freight train of Rome's injustice system. Examine your own hearts. What do you fear? Where are you tempted to fear something else more than the Lord? Do you fear that the government will encroach on your prerogatives? Do you fear the Democrats or the Republicans or whoever? Do you fear a new world order? Do you fear a madman with his finger on the button of 46% of the world's nuclear weapons? Do you fear China's economic colonialism? Do you fear cultural or demographic shifts here at home? Do you fear refugees or minorities or Marxism or postmodernism or CRT or any of the other thousand things that we are told we're supposed to fear these days? Do you fear bankruptcy? Do you fear ostracization, being ostracized? What do you most fear? We all fear things. We all fear things. And let's be honest, we all fear the wrong things. Most of us would, because we know the right answer, right? We would say the right thing if we were asked, what do you fear? Of course, we would say, well, I fear the Lord above everything. Our hearts are deceitful. We know what the right answer is supposed to be, and our hearts deceive us, and so we give the right answer. A direct examination of your own heart is incredibly difficult. So instead of asking yourself, what do I fear directly, ask yourself this. What do your actions tell you that you are most afraid of? What do you get angry when it's threatened? Where do you get terrified and lash out when something threatens you? That is where your fear is located. What are your actions telling you that you are most afraid of? You and I, we're really good at lying to ourselves. But our actions, when the rubber meets the road, when we're actually tried, when things get difficult, our actions will tell on us. What is it? that you fear most. If Jesus Christ purchased you on the cross, do you think that he will allow himself to be defrauded by anything at all in the world so that he would be robbed of what he purchased with his blood at such great cost? Do you really think that he will allow himself to be defrauded by anything? 
Do not fear him who can kill the body, and after that do nothing more. Fear him who alike can cast body and soul together into hell. There isn't just a threat there. In our passage, certainly the threat is there. But there's also the promise. The word of God is living and effective or active or powerful. That Greek word can be translated in a whole range of English words, uh, and all of them apply. God's word is not just the ramblings of people who died thousands of years ago. It is alive. It is active. The Holy Spirit works through His Word, and He accomplishes His purposes always. God said through Isaiah, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to heaven, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Word of God, by the Spirit of God, will always, without exception, accomplish the purpose of God. Always. Yes, there's a threat implicit in that because it does function like a scalpel in our lives, lancing the boils of sin, bringing to light the ugly tumors and cutting them out. But where the non-believer can have only the threat, the danger of judgment of the sharp sword destroying, for the Christian, we receive the promise of a surgeon. Yeah, it's probably going to hurt. Surgery is not fun, especially if it happens to be done without anesthetic. It's not a whole lot of fun. And even if it is done with anesthetic, recovery takes a while and hurts. Yeah, it's probably going to hurt, but it will accomplish because the Spirit is at work and He's the one who's holding the scalpel. It will accomplish a greater health, a greater spiritual health than you could possibly have apart from it. James tells us in his letter, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy? Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As Paul said to the uh, Thessalonians in, in the first book, this is the will of God. That's the question we're always answering. What is God's will for my life? What is it that God wants me to do? This is the will of God. Your sanctification he is making us holy that is the purpose in your life toward which god is working toward which he is acting the pain that you and i feel in this life and don't fool yourself we exist in a world of pain and misery because of the sin of adam even apart from your own sin even if you were somehow able to avoid sinning and bringing pain on yourself the sin of adam rests on you The grief as the result of that falls on you because you are Adam's son and Adam's daughter. This world is... The pain and the grief in this world is legion. But Christian, the pain that you and I face in this life is never pointless. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. 
speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain shows us that this world is not our hope. The grief that we face shows us that this is not our hope. This is not where we are supposed to be. This is not the way the world was supposed to be. There is a better hope. As Christians, we know what it is and we run toward it. We pursue it with everything in us in response to what the Spirit is doing in us already. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I was reminded recently of a clip that's been circulating on the internet for several years now, an interview with talk show host Stephen Colbert. Um, In this interview, he explored how he found gratitude, really faith in the midst of suffering. By way of background, when Colbert was 10, uh, his father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash. Uh, And he was the only child still at home with his mother in, in the years immediately following that crash. Uh, And so in this interview, when he was asked how he could experience such loss and not become angry or bitter, uh, he expressed his faith. He said, I was raised in the Catholic tradition. That's my context for my existence. I'm here to know God, love God, and serve God that we might be happy with each other in this world and with him in the next. That's the Catholic catechism, by the way. He says, that makes a lot of sense to me. I got that from my mom and from my dad and from my siblings. I was left alone a lot after dad and the boys died. It was just me and mom for a long time, he said. By her example, I am not bitter. She was broken, yes, but not bitter. Colbert said that even in his mother's days of unremitting grief, she drew on her faith that the only way not to be swallowed by sorrow is to recognize that our sorrows are inseparable from our joy, to understand is to always understand our suffering and ourselves in light of eternity. And Colbert referenced a a letter that Tolkien wrote. You know me, I'm going to get to Tolkien eventually, It's every every time. Uh, But there's this letter that Tolkien wrote, and in it he said, What sufferings from God are not gifts? What sufferings from God are not gifts? As Job put it, How shall I accept the good and reject the bad? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Colbert, as he was reflecting on that, he said, It would be ungrateful in me, unfaithful in me, not to take all of it with gratitude. Doesn't mean that you want it, that you look forward to the pain. He says, I can hold both of those ideas in my head at the same time. That pain is miserable and it's not a lot of fun. But also that the Lord works in and through it. And even pain and grief for the Christian is God's gift in this world. To lead us to sanctification and to himself. When God allows grief and pain to touch your life of whatever kind, know that he is watching over every part of it and he will accomplish he will make it accomplish his good purpose your sanctification christian the world may rage against you evil men will attempt evil against you but even the hairs on your head few though they may be 
even the hairs on your head are numbered. And not one of them will fall apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Your worth, Christian, your worth is infinite. And Christ will not be robbed of those whom he purchased. As Justin Martyr said just before dying for his faith in the middle of the second century, 150 or 60 AD or so, uh, as, as he said right before he was martyred, he said, they can kill us but they cannot do us any harm. They can kill us, but they cannot do us any harm. Why? Because the Lord is living, and He will bring about what He has purposed to bring about. His will cannot be thwarted. No matter what evil men do, no matter what nations rage against it, His will will not be thwarted. What He has purposed always, without exception, what he has purposed in this world always accomplishes two things. His glory and the good of those who are called by Christ's name. Now, it may not look like the good that we'd like for it to look like. We, we want our good to be a fat bank account and life of ease, right? Maybe that's just me. But everything he allows in your life, Christian, is for your sanctification, for your being made more and more in the image of Christ. And there is no better good than that. Everything is for his glory and for the good of those who are called by Christ's name. If that's you, if you are called by Christ's name, fear him above all else. Orient your fear rightly fear him above all else for he is shepherding you he is making you holy even as he is holy and what he has begun in you he will be faithful to complete amen let's pray lord jesus we thank you for your grace for your severe mercies to us even when we really don't want to deal with it even when we would like nothing more than to be fat and happy and comfortable. We praise you even through our tears for the work that you are accomplishing in us because we need you above all else. We need sanctification and holiness above all else, and that will not happen if you aren't performing surgery on our hearts, on our lives. Lord Jesus, come do the surgery that we need. In your good time, in your good providence, do what we need most. Give us holiness that we might be pleasing servants of you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.